You have tuned into Dave's Daredevil Podcast, episode 13, in which the Kingpin grabs New York in a stranglehold of crime, and Matt loses his cool once again, but in all the right ways. Welcome once again to an all-new episode of Dave's Daredevil Podcast. I am J. David Weeder. You can call me Dave. And here we are at the 13th episode, which is, ooh, unlucky number. I'm going to make use of that by giving you a small rant. It's been eating away at me for a bit. I've been waiting for the right time. I've been putting it off. But I have to air my grievance with Electra. I'm not a huge Electra fan in a sense. Mainly because she has been misused for way too long and it has affected Daredevil. How? Without even mentioning the story context, look at the set of Marvel stamps that were released a few years ago. These were U.S. postal stamps. Official postal stamps. You can actually just Google Marvel stamps. Take a moment and do it if you would. Have that pulled up at some point. Or at least after listening to this. Most of the main Marvel heroes get one stamp showing a candid individual shot of them, and then another showing either their debut issue or at least a relevant issue to that character. Most of the big guns are here. Spider-Man, Hulk, Captain America, The Thing. Oddly, Spider-Woman gets a stamp of her own. Thor doesn't, which is a crime in itself in terms of the Marvel pantheon. But, nestled in here is a stamp featuring Elektra. Elektra. We are looking at what is essentially the main Marvel stable of characters, and we get Elektra. Not Daredevil. Not the hero whose comic birthed her. And it gets worse. The cover at the bottom section of the stamps, the relevant issue cover, it shows the image from Daredevil 176, which is not even the correct debut issue. But instead of the Daredevil logo, it's replaced with an Elektra logo. Again, these are officially licensed. They're sanctioned by Marvel. They had to go through legal and creative channels galore just to make sure that the rights were in place and the images that were chosen represented the heroes. Somewhere in this very lengthy back and forth between the U.S. Postal Service, Marvel Legal, Marvel Executive, Marvel Creative Offices, as well as Marvel Public Relations, somebody decided that Daredevil wasn't important enough to represent Marvel. And in his place, they stuck Elektra. Now, as we're going to be seeing, Elektra served a very important but very limited role in Daredevil's ongoing tale. She's a huge brick in the wall, but she's not the mural that covers the wall. Elektra was born of Daredevil, and she is there to add to his story. That was the actual reason that she was added, not to create a new hero for the Marvel Universe to eclipse Daredevil. Yet, there is a new Elektra ongoing series coming down the pike, on top of two other ongoing series that came before. For those that have seen it, who know how Elektra's story played out and the mechanics behind that, can you see how this character being brought to the forefront and presented as part of the Marvel pantheon of heroes has a huge bit of annoyance for me, especially at the cost of Daredevil himself. That was something I needed to get off my chest. It's been there for a while. I decided that it was finally time to spit it out, and I know, I know. I probably should have mentioned this last week when Elektra was on the table, but with this miniseries preceding the run proper in terms of story chronology, 
it makes me pick and choose which points to expand on. So it's got me a bit discombobulated because sometimes it's easier to call back to this miniseries in some spots, for example the bow and arrow scene, or the eventual return to some scenes later, Matt's epiphany being one of them. There is a plan here and somewhat thought out train of thought to overall narrative that Miller weaved. But the Electra stamp debacle has weighed heavily as I've been doing my preliminary reread of the run. By promise, rant over. Let's get down to brass tacks. This week we enter into the penultimate chapter of Frank Miller's Daredevil origin tale, The Man Without Fear, which takes the story down a whole new path. At the end of last issue, the Kingpin rose to prominence in the New York underworld as Daredevil saw the woman he loves take off for a flight to parts unknown. Well, eventually we will know Electra's fate, but not for a little while. This week we speed ahead a few years and find Matt living in a new life that is about to get shredded as he returns to Hell's Kitchen and finds what the Kingpin has made of it. And that is all in Daredevil The Man Without Fear number 4, and it is all after this podcast promo break. I will be right back. This is Tokyo, once a city of six million people. What has happened here was caused by a force which up until a few days ago was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. Tokyo, a smoldering memorial to the unknown. An unknown which at this very moment still prevails and could at any time lash out with its terrible destruction anywhere else in the world. Hi folks, Luke Giaconetti here. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Do you like giant monsters, or as they're called in Japan, daikaiju? Monsters like Godzilla, Rodan, Gamera, King Ghidorah, or Mothra? Do you like more obscure monsters, such as Gappa or Yangari? Do you like giant heroes like Ultraman, or super robots like the Shogun Warriors? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then I think you might like my podcast, Earth Destruction Directive. I'm a dedicated fan of all things Daikaiju, and I'd like to share that with all of you. Please check out Earth Destruction Directive at twotruefreaks.com. Earth Destruction Directive, where we turn your Daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. Welcome back from that promo break. Now to look at this week's issue. This week's issue hit stands on November 23rd, 1993, one day after Bill Bixby passed away. Bixby, of course, famous for many roles, such as My Favorite Martian, but primarily David Banner, the alter ego of The Incredible Hulk. I know what some of you are thinking. What does Bill Bixby have to do with Daredevil? Where are you going, Dave? Well, Daredevil made his live-action debut on the TV movie Trial of the Incredible Hulk, so it's not a lot, but... The comics on this cover month were pretty meh. Anyway, Man Without Fear number 4, which had the lion's share of supplemental material in the trade paperback, beginning with an unused cover of Daredevil in costume, jumping face-to-face with the kingpin who has a young girl in his grasp. Now, this would have been the foreground image, and I can see why it wasn't used. It would have been very misleading. 
as Daredevil doesn't actually appear in costume, much less come face to face with the Kingpin. My main thought was the colors just don't pop, but this was never a cover that went through certain portions of the production process, so that's not surprising. Actually, very good choice in not using this cover. The actual cover shows Wilson Fisk, a.k.a. the Kingpin, in the foreground with one of his meaty paws holding a little girl. While Kingpin stares at the reader, the girl struggles to get away from him. The background image, which is the red foil stamp, shows an angry daredevil with his billy club in hand screaming in rage. The final cover really nails a ton of intense emotion. I mean, Daredevil's filled with anger and outrage in the red foil portion, which is really the, the part that kept my attention. By comparison, Kingpin looks large and in charge. He's more relaxed. He's more in control. And rather than having the girl in the vice grips of his meaty paws, he just holds her with one hand as she struggles to run away. But Kingpin retains his resolve. He's looking at the reader rather than the girl or Daredevil. This is actually really kind of scary. In the original cover, Kingpin posed a physical threat, but here he poses an unknown threat. What does he know that we don't? And holding the girl who is off to the side with the one hand makes it look far more effortless, as if Fisk wasn't exerting himself at all. So he's still posing a physical threat. This issue also had a prologue in the supplemental material, and I'm going to confess my ignorance and lack of memory as to whether or not this prologue was in the original comic itself. What the prologue does is recap the previous three issues. It brings us up to speed with images from the issues reproduced only in red. It plays with the idea that Matt could have easily become a villain, which is true. More in the vein of uh, Jack Murdock being a heavy for the mob and less Doctor Doom or Kang the Conqueror. I thought it was weird that such a prologue would be produced at all, much less included. The issues were released uh, from everything I see on time, on schedule, with no delays. Clearly Miller and Romita Jr. didn't go to the Kevin Smith School of Comic Book Production. And with the schedule met, wasn't it a safe bet that readers were already on board with the story by this issue? Maybe, but the prologue is there nonetheless, so maybe Marvel decided that readers may be jumping in with this issue thanks to the Kingpin being on the cover, which is more in line with traditional Daredevil fare. Or, given that the entire last third of issue 2 and pretty much all of issue 3 were devoted to Matt and Elektra, all of which was an addendum to the initial story, maybe this was created to help the boat get back on course. Either way, the issue itself was cover dated January 1994. The cover, as I mentioned, was, um, of course, by John Romita Jr. with inks by Al Williamson. Once again, the same creative team shows up. Writing was done by Frank Miller, penciling by John Romita Jr., inks by Al Williamson, colors by Joseph Rosen, and colorist was Christy Scheel. Again, if you're wanting to follow along, the entire thing is collected in a hardcover and trade paperback version. A new printing just hit the stands a few months ago. It's at $19.99. Check in-stock trades. And also, it's all on Marvel Digital Unlimited. Or visit mycomicshop.com, where you can actually fairly cheaply get the miniseries. And jumping into Chapter 4 here, with the regime change in the crime syndicates of New York that we saw last issue, Wilson Fisk, a.k.a. the Kingpin, has brought new levels of crime to the city. Designer drugs are on the streets, highly addictive and leaving the user wanting nothing more than another fix. Profits are rolling in from the kidnapping and selling of children as lives are destroyed and the Kingpin uses his own personal army to enforce his command. This includes a man called Larks. The Kingpin's own personal right-hand man raised by Fisk to be a soulless killing machine. Fisk keeps his stranglehold on the city's crime even as years pass, and New York falls deeper and deeper into its own crime-laden abyss. You know, let me stop there for just a second. When Fisk unsurped Rigoletto as the Kingpin, the main point of contention 
that allowed him to come to power was that Rigoletto had certain restrictions. He had certain rules on which crimes were acceptable and crimes that were unacceptable. He refused to allow child prostitution or designer drugs, things that would allow a certain level of corruption. Playing by these rules, and thus cutting into the conglomerate's profits, got Rigoletto ousted by way of a broken neck. This creates an interesting comparison. Rigoletto was operating under a set of rules, kind of like Matt is. Fisk has no restrictions on where he will go, at least not at this stage. Eventually, we do see a kingpin with certain barriers, though not many, and a code, I guess, would be a better way, about committing crime. But now he's making a huge power play. He cannot afford those rules. Kingpin corrupts everything that he touches. And the perfect example is this right-hand man of his, Larks. I mean, think about this. This is a guy that Fisk has raised from a child and created into a stone-cold killer. I mean, just a hollow automaton who exists solely to kill and to do so where, when, and how the kingpin orders it, regardless of who or why. This is the effect that Fisk has, and in a similar fashion, New York has been hollowed out and robbed of its soul. Children are sold, drugs are dealt, and blood is flowing in the streets. And I know what you're thinking. Where's Matt? Where's Matt Murdock in all of this? Well, as mentioned, years have passed. So we find out that Matt has graduated college and moved on to a very promising career with the Boston-based law firm of Sussman and Castro. And here, he's on a solid career path to being the firm's youngest junior partner. But reluctantly, Matt returns to New York to work on a case for his bosses and finds himself in Hell's Kitchen one night. He begins to remember the bullying and the fists and words of his tormentors as a group of muggers approach Matt and threaten to take his suit. Matt hears his bullies in these would-be muggers and snaps his cane and delivers a feral beating to the punks, leaving them in a heap on the street. All the while, Matt hears his childhood bullies repeating their nickname for him, Daredevil. Daredevil. And when Matt calms down, he makes his way to the old boxing gym, which has long been boarded up. But Matt is not alone as somebody watches from the shadows, and a young girl is shocked when she shoots her slingshot and Matt catches the pebble. Matt assures the girl he means her no harm, and the girl says that her name is Mickey and she is an orphan. Matt knows she is lying. But the two become friends, and Matt helps her exercise every day after school, giving her a safe place to go. One day, as Matt is wondering if Officer Leibowitz's billy club is still stuffed in that rusty old locker, Mickey asks about a poster on the wall. It shows Jack Murdock in a red suit with a horn mask and a letter D on the cape. Matt explains that Jack had some problems getting into boxing bouts, so he took some wrestling gigs, and the costume is where the kids found his old nickname, the old taunt, Daredevil. Now, Matt has escaped Hell's Kitchen. He's made a life for himself in Boston. Good on him. The heartbreak of Electra is behind him, for the moment, and he is making good on his promise to Jack. And then he's suddenly back in New York and finds his way back to the old neighborhood and then thrashes some punks. Whether intentionally or not, this scene really made me call back to Electra's plight in a way, which may sound like an odd thing to say on the surface, but hear me out. Matt is finding himself haunted by his own voices in the head. He has his own rage unleashed, much like Electra did last issue. Somewhere, Matt must have come to terms, at some level at least, with the death of the prostitute and his failure and all of that stuff that was plaguing him, because... He sure loses control here and lashes out on these thugs and by proxy the bullies who made Matt's life hell. The bullying really took its toll on Matt and his self-confidence never recovered, which is sad. No matter his success, as soon as he sets foot on this familiar territory, he reverts to the bookish blind kid. This time, though, he's more pent up than ever. I mean, he is wound tight.
tight because the beating that we witness is far more extended and violent than even what Matt laid down on the Fixer's men. That in no way, shape, or form means that he has more anger for these bullies than the Fixer's crew. He, he dealt with them. He took care of Jack Murdoch's killers. The case is closed. The bullying he received, however, remains unresolved. And that has been festering within Matt for years now. Matt is a man who has great physical and mental capabilities who had to hold back as these kids hit him and relentlessly made his life hell. And for what? Because he was quiet? Because he was studious? Because he refused to fight? He was an easy target, perhaps. Matt has a right to be bitter and angry because he will never have a real chance to put it right and make them pay. I'm not going to advocate somebody pay with blood in the real world for bullying. However, I know where Matt's coming from. When I was 12, I moved to a new school on the slightly more affluent side of our town. I was a comic and cartoon geek then, and I wore a reversible G.I. Joe belt. One side was camouflage, the other side was red, white, and blue. The buckle was the G.I. Joe logo. I never thought anything about it. But when these kids saw it, I never heard the end of it. In fact, at one point during these horrible sessions, a girl outright challenged me to find one person who respected me as a human being. I didn't, which made me a little bit more upset, but, you know, they were words. And they were words from a sixth grade girl, which burn. And these things stay with you. Bullying has lasting effects, even for those who manage to escape without being beaten up. I mean, there were days where I ran home from school to avoid some of the kids at, at, that I went to school with. Now, I'm not sharing this as an invitation to my pity party. Because the, the girl that actually posed that question about a human being, she and I actually became really good friends down the road. Things did get better. But I share this to relate that the reality that is being conveyed here is very tangible. Even within the realm of a fantasy comic book. Matt's core emotion is a very real one. And one that I can tell you does exist. And I'm sure that many of you who grew up as a comic book fan can relate. And you know, before I move on with this discussion, I do want to take a moment to pause. Because I want to say something very important here. Bullies. If you get your kicks off of hurting other people emotionally and physically, that is a sociopath. You need treatment. Seek it now. So, back to the book and the scene. Matt has these feelings festering inside of him. They've been there for so long. He was able to tackle Foggy's bully situation, which is a proxy, and he made that right, but it's not his own, and those ghosts are still haunting him. Thankfully for Matt, but not so much for the punks that he beats the crap out of, there came an outlet to release some of that rage. As I alluded to, this is a very long beating. Three full pages, and I get why. It has the same emotional resonance as Matt facing Slade. And my final note on this scene is, we see Matt snap his walking cane, and then he proceeds to not use it in a single panel afterward. So... Instead of an early stage Kane slash Billy Club, we actually see a literal representation of Matt snapping on these guys. And then we move into the more comforting sounds of the old boxing gym. Returning to the gym, it actually made me think about the first half of the series, which makes this issue feel like a, almost a sequel of sorts to the previous issues. The electro portions of the story changed the layout, and I see that clearly here. And it kind of makes the prologue make sense a bit, I guess. The flow between parts A and C was interrupted. Not a bad thing, because I like the Electra scenes, they were a logical addition, but it was placed where there wasn't really a readily available gap in the story. So the flow of the story is knocked off course a bit, but it quickly regains its footing with the return to the stage set at the series onset. 
It creates a sort of uh, bookend. And then there's Mickey. If Matt has become a reflection of Electra, Mickey is a reflection of the young Matt that we met at the beginning of this series. And that's the Matt that he is revisiting. Those are the memories that are coming back. He feels at home with her. He is back in control. This is his safe place again. And we also see a poster of Jack as the Devil Murdoch, wearing a red costume with horns and a cape with a single D on it. And Matt has a memory of the poster. Not sure where the yellow version of the costume comes from, but the red costume makes some sense. Matt talks about his dad with reverence, and as an adult, clearly sees some of the sacrifices that Jack made to keep them afloat, including taking on some wrestling gigs to pay the bills. Here we get a logical answer to a question that's kind of been on the table for a bit here. We get a solid line of thought as to the fully realized daredevil that we will meet down the road. Jack wore the devil suit, the horn mask, and the D on the cape. Matt, when chasing the Fixer's men, was wearing a set of Jack's old clothes giving them the idea that Jack had returned from the dead. The bullies used Jack's wrestling persona and turned it into the nickname Daredevil, causing Matt a lot of pain. On top of being a sneaky lawyer's trick, Daredevil is also a big middle finger to some of the seedier elements in Matt's past. Certainly to the bullies, because he takes their nickname and makes it something else. Also to the criminals, because he is wearing his fallen father's image to beat them down, almost like wearing the victim's face as a mask. Let me take a moment here. I want to pull an email out of the stack since it's a bit on topic, more than a little bit. This is from Edward and it came in with the subject line Sneaky Lawyer's Trick. Edward writes, Dave, that is clever. I never thought of Daredevil as a legal loophole. I like that. That goes toward explaining why Matt dresses like a devil. I love what you're doing with the show. I'll be listening for a long time. Edward. Edward added a PS. I posted a longer form of this email on my blog like something more than mortal. If you're interested you can read it here. And he enclosed the link. Now I bring up this email because Edward expanded on these thoughts in his blog post. And I was really pleased because this email came in while I was outlining notes for this episode informing my thoughts. And Edward had a lot of the same thoughts as I did concerning the identity and went into them in depth. One of the points Edward makes is that Daredevil took the name and the image out of spite. And if this origin is to be taken as the new canon... We kind of have that missing link in this particular scene. Now, I'm going to be posting a link to Edward's blog, which includes an earlier email he sent to me, but asked me not to read on air. And that email compares and contrasts Batman and Daredevil, all of which is good stuff, which I eventually would plan on doing the Batman-Daredevil crossovers. But I wanted to acknowledge a nice bit of synchronicity with the two of us coming to some of the same bits about Matt using the image of a devil and forming this costume. Or at least we were in the same frame of mind. But now we kind of have that missing link here that kind of puts it in order. You kind of get it a little bit more. At least I did. And maybe I'm reading more into it than that's there. So Daredevil's a sneaky lawyer's trick. A way to keep his promise to Jack, but still continue to do the right thing. On top of that, it's wearing the victim's face. And it's a big middle finger to the bullies. That's kind of win all the way around, isn't it? However, I'm not going to dwell too much on that. We still have more story to get back to, so let's crack the book open again. Matt reunites with Foggy Nelson, who is also working for a law firm, and Foggy recruits Matt to help with research on a case involving a slumlord, which sounds a little familiar. Meanwhile, the Kingpin decides to massively cut funding to the film division, which leads sleazy producer Clay to enlist two junkies to kidnap a girl to help recoup the loss of funding. 
The junkie, whose name is Silvio, and his girlfriend find Mickey and chloroform her, but learn they won't get paid till the following morning, and they need a fix tonight. So Silvio decides that he is a genius, and a plan pops into his head to run a ransom scheme, and learns Mickey's phone number, and he makes the call to her parents. Meanwhile, Matt finds Mickey's baseball cap, the one she loves so dearly she never leaves home without it, and she wrote her real name and real address in the lining of the cap. Matt knows something is wrong and uses his sense of touch to learn Mickey's home address from her hat. Matt is standing on the roof when Mickey's parents get the call from Silvio and agree to pay his $6,000 ransom. Matt runs back to the boxing gym and grabs the billy club out of the old locker, still there after all this time. But as Matt trails Mickey's dad from payphone to payphone to shake off any cops, Silvio's girlfriend rats Silvio out. Never trust a junkie. And news of this treachery quickly reaches the ears of the kingpin who orders Larks to terminate the two junkies and Clay. Clay is blowed up real good, the girl is killed off panel, and when Silvio returns to the motel room, Larks shoots him point blank in the head. Matt has been trailing Silvio and has a momentary brush with Larks before he is chased off, and Larks makes off with Mickey. Mickey is taken to a large waterfront warehouse where many children are held captive. Thrown in a small holding room, Mickey realizes that Matt may be able to hear her if she sings, judging by what she has seen him do. So she sings, and the other children join in, and this does help Matt find them. Matt, garbed in black with an eyeless mask over his face, begins taking apart and beating the sentries posted around the building. And after disabling the cars to prevent escape, Matt makes his way silently toward the final showdown in the building as the issue ends abruptly. And when I say it ends abruptly, I mean, it would be like doing a podcast episode and ending mid sent. No kidding. I mean, but that's that's pretty much how it would be, ending mid-sentence. Uh, Miller, I mean, successfully creates a scenario to not only reunite Matt and Foggy, but build on their college relationship and evolve it into what we will see later as the functional professional relationship. The yin and the yang are matching up. And of course, that's in the background, uh, performing as expected in the story. But did anyone else peg Mickey as the MacGuffin that prods Matt into action? I sure did. Not to spoil anything, but Mickey does not have a counterpart in the more contemporary Daredevil stories, speaking chronologically. Her only appearances are within this miniseries, that's all I'm saying. And the way the pecking order plays out is... It, it's not predictable, but it's appropriate. What I mean by that is you don't necessarily see the next step coming, but when it happens you recognize the trajectory of where we're heading. Junkies double-cross their boss and each other, and the Kingpin has no room in his organization for this at all. Everything plays out to a comfortable tune. Now we're in an 80s action movie, which is where we should be. We have a hero who is looking for that moment, and Matt pursues the moment. And speaking of pursuit, the image of Matt standing on the rooftop of Mickey's apartment building, in the wind and the rain, ranks as the second best image of the whole series. It's important because he is not in a heroic pose. He is in a resigned pose. It sells the moment. This is not something he wants to do, but something he has to do. This is where Matt Murdock engages and embraces what he can do, what he is capable of, and that means breaking a promise to Jack Murdock, which has a certain level of heartbreak. John Romita Jr. did so well here. He tells all of that in a single splash page image, and it is worthy of long stares. Not just as a piece of gorgeous art, but as a wonderful piece of storytelling. So with that decision made, what does Matt do? He goes back to the gym and kicks in the locker with Officer Leibowitz's old billy club. He goes back to the core of this origin within the story, 
that very first scene of the first issue. This is his weapon of choice, a trinket from his brief masked life and a symbol of the authority that Matt was rebelling against as a precocious child. It's the authority of the law, which Matt is committed to at this point, and Matt goes back to take a symbol of his rebellion. He is breaking his rules in a controlled, focused act, and whether consciously or unconsciously, he reaches out for the spirit of that prankster child with the devil-may-care attitude. I don't think it was intentional that Matt went back to a point that would be beyond his statute of limitations for prosecution and, and as far as the, pro the promise for Jack Murdoch. Let me be clear, I'm injecting my own interpretation of the symbolism. Matt is cheating the rules by hearkening back to a point before he made that promise to Jack. So in a way, it doesn't count. And curiously, there were two deleted scenes as Mickey's father goes from payphone to payphone to make the drop. One shows Matt trailing her father and actually getting caught by surprise by a subway train, which alerted the father to Matt's presence and leads to the father trying to knock Matt off of his trail. The second deleted scene, both of which are reprinted in the supplemental material of the trade, shows the junkie Silvio driving with Matt on top of the car. Silvio runs into an apartment building, presumably to score, and then back out to the car where Matt continues to hitch a ride. Both of these scenes were, in my opinion, deleted appropriately. They were fine scenes, but just not needed. And the irony of Silvio having a repeated saying that he is a genius and then getting shot point-blank in the head didn't slip past pretty much anybody. There is one question I'm left with. As Kingpin begins to fortify his operation, he has a Mr. Slaughter get his men ready. And I tried to figure out for sure if this is indeed a character named Eric Slaughter who we're going to be seeing before too terribly long. And through all the research, I came up more confused than when I started. Some resources say yes, some say no. Either way, when I thought about it, it didn't entirely jive for Slaughter to be working for the Kingpin. And you'll see why in about two episodes' time, but it seems odd for Frank Miller, who wrote many stories featuring Eric Slaughter, to randomly reuse that name. So I'm sitting on the 50-50 mark on that. I'm right in the middle of the fence. But poor Mickey. I mean, things go from bad to worse for her. She's snatched by junkies to presumably be sold to fund the film division, or worse and then gets taken to this god-awful, genuinely terrifying place where children are put in rooms like cattle. We're talking room after room of kids. I know, like most of you, I really, really want to live in a world where this kind of thing is not real. I want to live in a world where the words human and trafficking don't combine at all, especially with kids. It's hard to fathom this level of horror, and it's hard to fathom it for... For the kids, from their perspective, and Brave Mickey almost made me tear up a bit by singing so Matt could hopefully hear her. And then the other kids join in. It's almost cheesy, but it's still moving enough to really draw me in and make me root for these kids and root for Matt. And Matt, he's in a proto-daredevil suit, a black track suit and jacket with a bandana over his head and covering his eyes. It reminds me a bit of Rex Smith's get-up for The Trial of the Incredible Hulk, which I mentioned at the start of this. Which is to say that it works as a Matt Murdock get-up, get just not quite at Daredevil level. And then we get some great Daredevil action. I mean, spot-on. Wonderful moments such as the guy listening to music with his cohorts behind him. In the span of time that it takes this guy to blow a bubble with his gum, his friends are down and Matt successfully throws the billy club at his face, knocking him out in another wonderful shot. Remember that I said we are now seeing an 80s action movie, and I mean that as a compliment. And this moment shows what I'm talking about. If this scene had played out in a movie theater, the audience would applaud. 
and then the audience would have a massive problem, as it would seem there is a problem with the projector. I say this because the story stops a page later with Matt rushing to the climax. Come on. I mean, we're right there, and it at least give us, give us a splash to end on, or something to really get us pumped for the final segment next issue. This just stops with Matt running. It stops just as the story is heating up. Why not stop right before Matt begins assaulting the guards? Why not show us Matt ready to face his foes and build us up for the next installment? Presentation counts, and it counts big time, especially since this comic came at a time before trades for everything were just mandatory. That's what happened. But then again, what did I expect? This has been happening every issue so far. Overall, this issue really stepped it into gear, though. It moved swiftly, it built a whole new leg of the story, but it suffered from the previous installments. The Electra section was really good, as far as a reading experience, and it was something any Daredevil fan would expect from the story, but it threw off the pacing. That causes a bit of a conflict for me. Sure, I'm glad to see some of the Electra backstory expanded, it fills in some small gaps in the character's original appearances, as we'll see, but the story was originally outlined. But the story, as originally outlined, is about Matt becoming Daredevil and the beast that drives him. From where the story splits into Matt meeting Elektra to where this issue picks up, there is a certain pace and flavor. The Elektra portions of issues 2 and 3, they end up working kind of like a mad fold-in. They make one story when included and spread out, but when removed, there's a revelation of a whole different story and focus. So essentially, once the story is folded in, it's a whole other beast. Yet, had there not been at least a mention or reference to Electra, I probably would have been the first one to cry foul. Some call that hypocrisy, I call it wanting to have my cake and eat it too. Back to the issue itself, though. I like Mickey, and I like Matt's relationship with her. As an only child, Matt never understood how to relate to a sibling, and from what we know, he had problems relating to his contemporaries. With Mickey, not only do we see a reflection of the young Matt, we see Matt assuming the role of Stick. Stick didn't just teach a blind boy to shoot arrows or to leap across rooftops. He also helped mentor a young man who was lacking a direction, but had a good heart. Matt knows Mickey is lying to him when she says that she's an orphan, but still sees the potential in guiding her and keeping her on a path that aligns with the rules. In turn, it seems that Matt gains some perspective from being on the outside looking in and learns that Hell's Kitchen is a place worth saving. For every junkie like Silvio, there is a Mickey. For every killer like Lark's, there is a father like Mickey's who will give up every cent the family has to get his daughter back. What we see here is really the completion of Matt's training with Stick. As Matt gets it, he understands the potential of what he can be, and when the time comes to decide his future, he knows what to do to save Mickey. It's a very good beat for Matt, and kind of the moment that we complete the circle begun in issue one, especially with the visual cue of picking up the billy cup from the same issue, and despite the awkward ending, I was on board with the whole issue because we saw Matt really take the role of stick and really gain control over himself, his environment, and remove all of that to see his mission. This is Matt pulling back the bowstring, the arrow is released, and it is finally targeted. But very good issue, and of course next week we will be wrapping this up with the ultra big climax. For now though, it is time to read your emails. And now, listener email. And our first email this week is from Russell Bragg from Clarksburg, West Virginia. His email has the subject line, Episode 7, Death is a Black Widow. And Russell writes, Hi Dave, great episode as always. Not knowing much about the Black Widow, I wondered how deadly her sting is, and has it changed over the years? 
That's about all I have this time. Continued success on this and every podcast you do. Thank you for that, Russell. Um, her sting, uh, it can be pretty deadly, but then again, with electricity, there's enough juice in a 9-volt battery to technically kill a person focused the right way, which is kind of fun to think about. Deadly killers in the home, folks. It has changed moderately. Uh, the concept has been pretty much static all the way through. Uh, they did tweak it a bit when she kind of went through the more superhero rather than super spy. But at the end of the day, I mean, it was really cosmetic changes. They took away the, the bracelets and kind of ingrained it into that horrible gray costume. Ugh. Russell also has another email, subject line, episode 8, Bullseye Never Misses. This time he writes, hello Dave, another great episode. I only know about Bullseye from the Ben Affleck Daredevil movie I haven't seen all of yet. As per your advice, and just about every other podcaster says the same, I bought the Daredevil Director's Cut on Blu-ray. I did watch a lot of the Brady Bunch when I was growing up, referring to me saying, see if we can equate everything to Brady Bunch because I like that idea, and still catch an episode here and there today. I watched and enjoyed every one of them. Nothing wrong with that. That's a classic show. No apologies. I even watched the awesome, and he actually directed me to say it sarcastically, so the awesome Brady Bunch Variety Hour, Brady Kids Cartoon, The Brady Brides, and The Brady Short-Lived Drama Series. If I can connect the Bradys and Daredevil in the future, I will do that for you. Guess that's all for this round. Keep up the great work. See, I... Just a quick Brady Bunch tangent. I never watched the Variety Hour. I've seen clips, enough to know that it's not for me. Saw a little bit of the Brady Kids cartoon, enough to know it's not for me. I did catch the Brady Brides by accident on Nick at Night, and... You know, it took me about... Halfway through the episode, I realized something's not right here. <laughs> Brady Brides was a spinoff in which Jan and Marcia were both married, and then that kind of went into the Brady short-lived drama series we were talking about, in which Marcia became an alcoholic. Yeah, I kind of watched that. Sorry, I have questionable tastes. But no, actually, I thought the Brady Brunch, uh, the, the Brady's, as it was called, uh, drama show was actually pretty entertaining at the time. I was home every Friday night to watch it in sixth grade. But enough about my social life in elementary school let's check out the next email from eddie garcia which is the subject line show song hey dave quick question what song is that you play as the theme song for the podcast great show by the way i'm a longtime dd fan and i've been reminiscing quite a bit lately thanks to your show keep it up eddie good i'm glad to bring back memories the song is the man without fear by a band called icarus they made the they're a prog rock band from the i think the 60s 70s they did a whole concept album simply on Marvel heroes. They even have one for Conan. And when putting together the the initial sound effects and so on and so forth for the show, you know, I kept going to some moody, royalty-free music. Some th I didn't want to do anything from the Daredevil soundtrack per se. And this just hit me as, hey, this is fun. And this remains the mission of the show is to have have fun reading these Daredevil issues. So whenever I hear that, I usually listen to the opening stuff when I'm recording the episode and it gets me in the right mindset that I'm here to have fun. And everybody else listening should be too. Our final email is from Chris with the subject line, Greetings from an Australian Fan. And Chris writes, Dear Dave, just wanted to send you an email to thank you for making a podcast about my favorite superhero, Daredevil. I found Daredevil later in life, and although he was not often amongst the comics I collected as a kid, he has flipped and kicked his way into position as my favorite comic character as an adult. I work as a police officer in a fairly rough side of town, and I think I relate to his street-level crime setting. Daredevil is just a man doing the best he can do to help out his own little neighborhood with the limited powers and resources he has at his disposal. Matt knows he can't save everyone 
like Superman, but he never gives up or uses his disability as an excuse not to try. I often think of Daredevil as I put on my own uniform and go out into the night for patrol, never wanting to back down but reminding myself that I'm not invincible. By coincidence, I also worked in disability before joining the police force and had many blind clients who showed me what real courage could be. I think this experience has also helped me appreciate Daredevil in a way I couldn't have as a kid. I've really enjoyed the show so far and hope you continue to well into the future. I feel the complexity of Matt Murdock lends himself to discussion more readily than some heroes, perhaps in part because writers also tend to struggle with the character. How his powers work exactly, how one can use them as a storytelling device, and how much Matt can actually see, etc. You can observe writers and artists struggling to pin Matt down and answer these questions, and yet it's almost impossible to arrive at a definitive version. It's incredibly fertile ground for the imagination. A hero's limitations are often more interesting than their powers, but instead of something one note like the color yellow or kryptonite, Matt has a range of obstacles for a writer to explore, physical and otherwise. Occasionally, I think writers forget that Matt even has any disability and write him completely straight as a sighted hero. I suppose it's hard to strike that balance between making use of the powers and slowing down the action to explain them, especially in combat scenes. I'd be interested in your thoughts on how different writers and artists approach his powers. Anyway, I can feel myself going on a tangent and could ramble on for hours, but I'll end up now by simply saying thank you and keep up the good work. Chris in Melbourne, Australia. That's right, the show has gone international. And I can't tell you how awesome it is, Chris, to hear, you know, a, a uniformed police officer saying they think of Daredevil. And kind of the way you look at it is very much the same way I do, that Daredevil is, he's doing a certain duty with what he has available. And that's kind of what I dig about Daredevil is, yeah, he has the, and, and this is actually broaching your other topic too, he has certain abilities, but he is not invincible, he can be shot, he can be beaten, and we will see him beaten. We have seen him beaten, <laughs> but still he goes out there and does what he, what he feels he has to do and what is really a service to his community. And he uses what is considered considered to be a disability to be his strength. And I really like that because it makes him human. And we talk a lot about Spider-Man being the most human. I'll give Daredevil a little bit more in that category than Spider-Man. And it's no slight to Spider-Man, just Spider-Man has strength. Spider-Man can stick to walls. Daredevil leaps on a wing and a prayer, not knowing, not seeing what his next landing spot will be. So to hear somebody who actually does put themselves out there, you know, to hear a real hero who really does put themselves out in in the line of fire, take, give us a, their perspective is always really nice. And I don't want to, I don't want to tarnish that too much, but I will say I appreciated it quite a bit. As far as how some writers use the power, Stan Lee really put it up front. I mean, it was v almost obnoxious that Daredevil every other page would point out, you know, I'm blind, right? Oh, look at my radar sense. Look at that. Miller plays with it a bit. He doesn't discount it. Like you said, some writers do basically write Matt as if he's sighted, like he's read Batman. And Miller struck a good balance where you were aware he was blind, but at the same time, it didn't do what you were mentioning and slow down the action. Wade seems to really, really nail this. We get a lot of explanation and a lot of the, the limitations. Wade's actually thought this through. At least that's the feeling I get. Like when he was going up against Ikari... And Akari notices the red color. And Matt's like, wait, I see what's happening here. He can see, but he's got everything else. I'm in trouble. But it is it is inconsistent. And like you said, it's a fertile place for imagination. So I don't want them to define it to a very, very fine point. Because I want a little bit of play to let future writers kind of see what else can be done and wow me a little bit. But Chris, really appreciate your email. Glad to hear we have an international listenership. And that's actually going to wrap up another episode of Dave's Daredevil Podcast. 
If you want to drop an email to the show, you can do so with the address dave at daredevilpodcast.com or use the handy-dandy contact form on the site, which is daredevilpodcast.com. And also, I notice we have no iTunes reviews. Please take a moment to review the show and be honest about it. I have fairly thick skin, but review the show on iTunes, please. It does help the show get noticed. It helps other people find the show. All you have to do is search out Dave's Daredevil Podcast, leave a, you know, one-sentence review. Just leave your thoughts. It helps the show really get noticed and leaves a warm glow in my heart, too. Also, the show is on Stitcher, the app that gives you streaming and download access to thousands of podcasts. It's available on pretty much every mobile format, so look for the Stitcher app. Next week, the final chapter of The Origin Tale Without Fear. What will happen to Mickey? Will Matt rise to the challenge and save her in time? And how does this story work as a whole? Find out in seven days. Until then, remember, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. He is the one they call a man without fear. Never far away whenever danger's near. Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a Nat World production. The show's archives can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. To subscribe to the show, you can visit iTunes, where you can leave a review, which helps the show get noticed. Or there's a handy RSS link at the website to use the podcatcher of your choice. The show is released every Sunday on all formats, and emails are welcome. The address is dave at daredevilpodcast.com. While you're at it, why not friend the show on Facebook? It's easily found by searching for Dave's Daredevil Podcast or just Daredevil Podcast if you're into the whole brevity thing. The important note I'd like to make is I don't make any money off of Daredevil or any Marvel property because they are copyrighted characters that are fully owned by Marvel Comics and their parent company, Disney. I just do this to entertain, so any and all music or sound clips are for entertainment purposes only, and the copyright still belongs to the copyright holder. No infringement is intended, so please, don't sue me. It's all in good fun, and it's all for the love of comics and the love of Daredevil. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you next week. Go Friday when you hear his name.